Welcome to the weekend edition of the Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hey, it's Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another weekend episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. I love when people surprise you, when you sort of put them in one category and then you find out they're capable of something you didn't expect. Underestimating is the wrong word, but you just, uh, you interacted with them in one component uh, or, or one facet or you experienced their work in one facet and then then you 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 meet them or you talk to them or you you see something else they did and you're like wow Julia Baird is I have to say someone I would put in that category I read and I have raved about her biography Queen Victoria it's one of the few biographies we carry at the painted porch I used it as a source in stillness I used it again in the book that I'm writing uh, just now love the book highly recommend it uh, check it out if you haven't and uh, I shot her a note after I read the book like two years ago, two and a half years ago, and we connected. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about people to have on the podcast and I shot her a note and she said, I'm happy to be, I'm happy to come on, but I'd like you to read my new book. And I said, sure, of course. She sent me this little book called Phosphorescence, which I'm carrying in my hand. The, t- the subtitle is A Memoir of Finding Joy When Your World Goes Dark. So I thought Julia would be someone I was a fan of as a biographer, but I didn't, I guess I just didn't expect to be reading a book and the subtitle 
or and and the the deck headline on the on the inside flap is a deeply personal exploration of what can sustain us through our darkest hours. And I just uh, I just absolutely loved this book. It was a great read about resilience, right? There's it's deeply stoked. Phosphorescence is basically things that sort of illuminate in the dark. Um, and she's talking, why, why do some animals glow, particularly sea creatures, literally glow? What makes a firefly do what it does? Um, that's where the word phosphorescence comes from. But I think we all know people that are like that. Those are the people that inspire us, even though life's thrown the absolute worst crap you can imagine at them. Somehow they still emanate this energy, this positivity, you know? And uh, that's what this book has too, which is which is fitting. So I wanted to talk to her, and I'm so excited to bring you this conversation. Uh, in addition to her book on Queen Victoria, Julia is a journalist, a broadcaster, and an author based in Sydney, Australia. She hosts The Drum on ABC TV, writes columns for the Sydney Morning Herald and the International New York Times. She has a PhD from Sydney University, and uh, as I said, just a wonderful writer and uh, I think you're really going to like this interview. You can go to her website, juliabaird.me. You can follow her on Twitter at Baird, Julia, B-A-I-R-D, Julia, and Julia. And then Instagram, the exact reverse, at Julia Baird. Just a, a, a wonderful book. Do check out Phosphorescence, and uh, which I'm plugging in the reading list newsletter this month, which you should subscribe to also. And uh, check out her book on Queen Victoria in the Painted Porch and enjoy this interview. You know, when I originally reached out, I wanted to talk to you about Queen Victoria, which I loved mm -hmm. uh, and was super helpful to me when I was writing Stillness. And I thought a little bit about it when I was writing Courage is Calling, actually. Um, and so when I reached out, I thought we would talk about that. I didn't know you had this new book, right. and, which you were nice enough to send me. But... Um, when I when I sat down to read the book, obviously only knowing you from Queen Victoria, uh, I wasn't sure what to expect. But there's sort of a, a, as the subtitle hints, right, a memoir of finding joy when your world goes dark. Mm -hmm. There is this sort of looming darkness in the book that you are combating with the phosphorescence. Yes. What what happened between uh, <laughs> the Queen Victoria book and? The, the the place that took you to write this book. Yeah, although I was kind of finishing my footnotes, who, as anyone who's ever written a biography knows is the most arduous part of writing a um, of, of writing one of those large tomes. Um, I was finish, finishing that at the time um, I got, got sick. I was diagnosed with this rare um, abdominal cancer and at first, they thought it was ovarian and which would have meant, I mean, the tumours were so large that it just would have meant that I just didn't have long to live. And so I had to get my head around that and then go through this really intense surgery um, where they, you know, uh, anyway, it, which takes, I don't know, I don't know how long it takes, 12 hours. The last one took 15 hours. Um, and and you have to slowly rebuild yourself in a way, walk again and um uh, encounter the world again. So you do go into a very dark place. I was really conscious that people had written before about happiness and, um, you know, you know, meaning and, and I really wanted to write about what is it 
when the world goes really dark, how do you get through? Like when you don't know if you can swing your legs out of bed or how do you put one foot in front of the other? And I was really surprised during my own experience. And I've had three surgeries for this um, for this cancer now. Um, I was really surprised about what actually did sustain me and how in some ways it seemed really simple but it was actually quite extraordinary and it was especially around awe and wonder. So you're, you're sort of, uh, you're, you're, you've got the exhilaration of finishing this book, which must have been many years in the making, yes, Queen Victoria book. Exactly. You've got two young kids yeah. and then you're just at the doctor one day and you get this terrible news. Well, I was actually, and I had worked so hard on this biography for years on top of like doing other jobs and moving countries because I moved back from the States to Australia in that period. And I was like, now finally I can live. And um, once I'd kind of finished that whole manuscript, but no, I got, um, I just started having terrible pains. So I just went to the emergency um, and I had, yeah, you know, it was the size of a basketball, this thing inside me. It was awful. Wow. Yeah, I know. And, and, yeah. and the prognosis was probably not like, were you, you're sorry, you're sort of staring, staring your own mortality in the face. Yeah. I was trying to, I don't know. I, I was trying to be, well, I suppose in some situations it's okay. I remember my doctor saying to me one day, um, listen, this is a surgeon very clinically spoken and he just said listen Julia I have to be honest with you all the signs are that this is very serious and I was like right and it's at that point that you go into okay how am I going to conserve my energy how am I going to stay strong and that point I went to a root point of really intense stillness I think is the best way to describe it and and how long is this this journey is it a year three years five, like how i'm not totally well, clear since, on the timeline since i first since i was diagnosed um yeah so that was in 2015 wow yeah so um yeah it's 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 very intense and i've got little kids and you know um i mean they've they've kind of grown into teenagers now but they my, my little boy had just started school so that that's that's the most confronting thing for me. I think you can kind of bear anything happening to you, but you worry about, you just worry about your little ones, right? No, that's that's sort of been the vibe of the pandemic, right? It's like, it's like we can figure it out, but you're sort of this sort of powerlessness and frustration because it, it, it it's taking something away from people who are not at all to blame, your, your kids. That's it, exactly right. And the innocence of that. And I just remember one yes. day and my doctor called me and was like, my surgeon, this guy, the clinical guy, he was like, I have to tell you, it's it's spread to your liver. And I went, oh, that's not good. <laughs> and he said, no, it's not. And I was cutting sandwiches for their lunch, you know. And so I just took them by the hands and I was walking them down the hill to their school just with my heart in my stomach thinking, I have got to get through this. Um yeah. So yeah, it, it really does. I mean, life narrows to a slit when you go through times like that and everything else kind of falls away. And it's it's really only what you care about. And I find the whole concept of a bucket list really interesting because I think bucket list assumes you've got quite a bit of time. If you're really at a sure. point where you're like, oh, I this could be, I don't know, months or I don't know, it's it, it, it your, your world almost shrinks in a way. <laughs> 
you don't really want to go and jump off cliffs. You just want to sit next to your kids and right. be with them and sit. I, with yeah, I, yeah. Ironically, it's like you want to do the things that you took the most for granted and tried to rush through in the course of your ordinary life, the sort of banal, uh, regular moments. Yeah. You fall in love with ordinariness all over again. I remember walking back into my little place after I'd had my first surgery and I was like, oh, I love this. There's my bed. (laughs) There's my couch. (laughs) There's my comfy. All those things like Having being able to have a cup of tea again was such a great thing. So yeah, um, and that's a real gift. Um, being able to really relish and savor pleasures, which is something my my son does very naturally. He just has a very low bar for what he enjoys in life. Like literally, we had this big trip to the US, and his favorite moment was he got a ball of pizza dough at a restaurant, and he talks about it. It was just unbelievable, this moment for him. It was just so good. Um, He just, yeah, he just relishes things. And I think that's one thing that's, you know, really core to happiness. I mean, you've thought about all of these things, I know. No, no, you're you're right. It's it's, uh, the the more, weirdly, the, the more you can sort of shrink your view to what's in front of you, there, I guess there's there's less FOMO and there's less uh, entitlements and you're just like, this is so nice. I want this for as long as I can have it. Yeah, that's right. And that gives you a real peace. So well, what I thought was, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you go. What I was going to say, what I thought was so unique about the book is, and you sort of talk about this at the beginning, which is like, you know, sort of most self-help books and most sort of uh, memoirs are usually coming from some place of positivity or reflection on how wonderful everything is. Let me show you how you should be. What's fascinating about this book is that it comes, it's still a lot of that, but coming from a very dark place. It, 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 mm. Obviously not quite on the scale of, like one of my favorite books is Man's Search for Meaning. There yeah. is something powerful about, hey, let me tell you what the meaning of life is from someone who has seen the worst of life, as opposed to even, even my books, I would have to admit, come from thinking about stuff, but not having to have gone through what you went through. Right. Now, I mean, one of the worst things when you're going through a really tough time is it can be positivity, to be honest. Like, and, and, and a lot of the discussion around, I mean, at the same time, I was really drawn to really positive, pragmatic people over that time. And I really kind of I value that. But when I was very conscious because I write a lot about awe and wonder and paying attention to the world and how astonishing that can be in uplifting you and drawing you out of yourself and giving you, as um, Rachel Carson discovered, like a really um, a, a, a strength that's that's remarkable and that we take for granted. Um, so I write a lot about the natural world, um, which we can talk about in a moment. But I, I really wanted to be conscious that. Um, when you're getting a, a terrible diagnosis or your partner has just died or something terrible has happened to a child of yours, it's not like you can't just say go and lie under a tree and everything will be fine. It won't. It's horrible. It's awful. Life, you have moments of immense suffering and struggle in life. That is life. Um, along, but, but twinned with that suffering can be moments of great beauty and tenderness and um, and, and sights 
but are, are purely marvellous. And I think I was just so, so surprised by <clears throat> my daily ocean swim and <clears throat> what that gave me. Um, and I, I, I wanted to write about that, 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 that everyone is different, I think, although I think, I think awe and wonder really can give that to anyone. But you just need to work out ways of deliberately living um, so that when you when you go through difficult times, you can almost um, rope together your crossbeams of resilience and just hang on to them for dear, for dear life. Well, you talk you talk about the sort of love of the outdoors and wilderness of Theodore Roosevelt, which I've always been fascinated by. Um, and I don't remember if you make the connection, but what I thought when I was reading that is, and I, I thought about it when. I read the subtitle of your book is have you seen the famous diary entry uh, that he did after his, his mother and wife died in the same house on the same day? Oh, wow. No. What did he say? So he, he, I forget what it is. It's 1880 something or whatever, but um, basically his mother dies and his wife dies in childbirth. um, And he just writes in his diary that night, there's a big X and he says, uh, the light has gone out of my life. Mm. And you get, you know, when you read that, you're like, oh, this is the end, right? This is the end of the guy's life. And you actually, this is the beginning of all the great things. Like he, he moves, he heads to the West in response to this devastation. And so I think there's something powerful about this idea of like, when life strips everything away from you, what do you find? And I, mm-hmm. I found that your book was sort of like, what do you find is really important when, when all all the light goes out of your life. That's right. And how can you find it? And that's why I became really obsessed with the idea of phosphorescence or bioluminescence. And that's, you know, living light Um, from vampire squids to fireflies to those little phytoplankton that you you would have seen images of of when the waves turn a kind of neon blue um, and you jump in it and it sparkles. I, I really became very, very intent on finding it for some, uh, for some, like I'm physically finding it. And actually it, it, it occurred in my neighbourhood um, just about a month ago, which was unbelievable. Um, and my daughter saw it as well because I had dragged her along to see it once and she said it was just the most euphoric experience of her life. Like there's something, sometimes I wish we could do recordings of, you know, like the double rainbow man, that sound in his mm-hmm. voice when he was just like so excited. That's what happens when you see something like these massive curling sparkling like electric blue waves in the middle of the night coming towards you um or you say you know a a whale breaching or whatever it is that you've kind of experienced um in the natural world we can revert to a childish and artless self and it can give you um I don't know a, a kind of high I don't know what you think of when you think of awe but I really um, have learnt that with awe, you have to deliberately pursue it. We tend to think, oh, well, we'll see a sunset at the end of the day. You might see at the beginning of the day. There's some cool, I don't know, um, uh, you know, cool things you can see in the parks at the end of your street, all those things, great. Um, but, But pursue it, like hunt them down because, um, so Rachel Carson, when, before she wrote, um, the Silent Spring, all about pesticides, kick-starting kick the modern environmental movement. 
in many ways. A few years before that, she wrote the book, the work she was most proud of was about wonder and it was about teaching children to wonder. She used to take her nephew, um, who was three or four years old, out through the woods and they would go down and look at tidal pools in Maine at night with little torches and see the activity in there. And she said that if she was, if she could have one wish, if she was a fairy godmother of all the children out there, it would be to give them a sense of wonder that would be undiminished throughout their lives so that their attention wouldn't be distracted by trivial things um, because she said it gives us kind of an immeasurable kind of strength and I was struck by that. It actually does. It makes us strong because when we're exposed to awe, we feel small. It's less about ourselves. Um, when we feel small, we're more likely to feel part of a community. We're more likely to want to protect the earth. And um, there's a kind of real ancient wisdom in that. And I was speaking to some First Nations people in Australia who said the same thing to me, how crucial it is to be psychologically small, even though we're told so often, especially professionally, which I completely understand, that it's important to occupy space and have authority and command attention, whatever. That's good in one realm. But actually, as human beings that care for each other and care for the planet and that need to sometimes um, kind of cope with our own sorrows. Smallness is a great thing. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. Opening up to a therapist might feel uncomfortable, exhausting, or exhilarating, but one thing's for certain, if you keep talking or texting with a licensed therapist, you'll gain insights and uncover truths you can only find in therapy. If you want some personal breakthroughs and judgment-free support, you can sign up right now for Talkspace. At Talkspace.com, you sign up online, you get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredible. Incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist, and you do it from the comfort of your home. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. And to celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast 80 bucks off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month with code SPACE80 and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic, code SPACE80. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure. How it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. You could say, right, the obstacle is the way I've always been a student of failure, of things that go wrong. It's so easy to celebrate things going right, but we can learn a lot from when it doesn't go right. Each week, David Duchovny chats with guests like Ben Stiller and Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure. Fail better together. Fail better is out now wherever you get your podcasts oh com completely i mean i was I, I was in budapest maybe this is towards the end of 2019 and i remember i went to this uh i was walking by and it was happening so i walked in I was in some you know enormous you know 500 year old uh church uh cathedral and there was some like sort of classical concert some choir was singing and i remember sitting in one of the pews listening to this. I'm not a religious person, yep. but I remember thinking like when it was, it was beautiful and, and looking around and I was trying to think like what this must have felt like 
to a person 500 years ago because they would have been doing the same concerts in the same way, in the same room, singing the same songs as I was hearing right then. Mm -hmm. And how because so much less stuff had been explained because they'd never been in a skyscraper or an airplane Mm -hmm. or had an iPhone in their pocket, how much more marvelous and unimaginably uh, unreal all of that would have felt just the sort of, I felt jealous for a second, right? Like Mm -hmm. I felt jealous of what it would have been like to experience what I was experiencing in a less jaded, spoiled way. And I think there's something pure and grateful and vulnerable about these either natural experiences and then also sort of man-made experiences where you're just like, how did this happen? Like, what made this and then and then you're dwarfed by it yeah and it's it's just uh, it's very powerful yeah i think you can absolutely get that from music from architecture a lot of architecture has got one of the big soaring arches especially in cathedrals and those kinds of things yeah are, are designed to give us that sp- sense of space and of wonder um we can have moments of awe at human achievement or witnessing moments of great magnanimity or generosity or those kinds of things. Um, But the dwarfing is a crucial part. And I was struck by this as well when I was looking, I started looking through the diaries of astronauts and they talk about the overview effect. So it's when, you know, we we send, um, they're, they're generally like scientists, engineers, mathematicians, teachers into space and they come back also philosophers and poets and theologians right. yeah and and they talk about like putting their finger up and a thumb up and obscuring the earth like a pea behind it and how it can't you have this sense of you know obviously perspective but but determination to care more fiercely for each other and protect what it is we have yeah uh yeah it's this i think uh I forget which one said it, but he was saying you you want to grab politicians by the back of their neck and say, yes. like, get your shit together. What are you doing? Yeah, send them into space. Some of them can come back. Maybe some of them could stay there, but mostly come back because you want them to have that sense of perspective, especially when it comes to climate, you know, um, all the discussions we're having this week. The, the, when When people are in space, you know, national boundaries disappear. Sure. Maps are artificial creations, you know, in terms of, I mean, sorry, not the mapping, but the na- the, the borders between countries are. Sure. Um, and I think that's a really profound thing to recognise. There's a whole bunch of science which is being done around the question of awe now, which I find fascinating. And some are trying to measure awe in goosebumps and others by, like, they'll get people to walk through a grove of um, Californian redwoods. And those who do as opposed to a crop control group who doesn't, are more likely to help someone who like falls over or drops a pen on the way into the park than those who don't. Um, people are more likely after they've been, you know, standing next to something like a T-Rex to sign their name smaller, um, to feel that they're more part of a group. And obviously there's there's more work to be done in it, but it's 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 really, really interesting, I think. Well, when you think about those um those views from space, like I remember thinking about this when I was writing Stillness, uh, my book Stillness is the Key, like that photo of Earth, like the famous blue marble photo. Yes. Like how unreal it is to go like, that photo is 50 years old. That's it. 
Like, like right. the, how recent are our, our ability to see the world from the distance that we are able to see it, uh, yeah. is, it. is so shockingly recent. Like even, you know, we, we talk about getting the 10,000 foot view. Like yes. when was the first time a human being was even able to get a 10,000 foot view? I, right. it, like, I think that would, that would surprise, the answer to that would surprise people. Yeah. And like, if you went back to ancient times and you suggested this to someone, you would think that such a perspective would provoke a revolution. You know, it should yeah. like so fundamentally transform the way we see each other um, and the world. And yet, and yet, you know. We've continued on in many destructive ways, I think. Um, another really interesting part of awe too is there was a study recently, I think it was came out in the psychology journal Emotion. It was took people on a bunch of awe walks um, that a control group who just went on walks and then they had another group that had an awe walk and that meant you pay attention, you look around you, is, the, is, the, is that tree in, in um you know, there's flowers blooming, what kind of, uh, what's happening with the whatever, bandicoots, for example, you don't have them, they're an endangered species, they live in my place, they squeak all night and they friggin' they're little funny marsupials, but anyway, they dig up, they dig up um, entire areas. Anyway, I would, I, on my morning walks, I see what the, what damage the bandicoot has, has um, done that day. Now, those who went on the ore walks, at the end of this several-week period were kind of a lot more pro-social sentiments, were more content. Um, but one really fascinating metric was that they were asked to take photographs of themselves throughout the walk. And at the beginning, like over time, their actual physical head shrunk in terms of the proportion they took up of these selfies, right? So at the beginning it's like, hey, here I am on my walk, uh, day, week one. Next it would be, oh, wow, look, can you see this? you know, autumn leaf behind me in this tree. It's actually phenomenal. And their head would get, like it literally, their heads got smaller. It's like this, it could not more perfectly illustrate what an antidote to narcissism it is actually paying more attention to the world. They were sort of shrinking into the, or becoming more a part of the landscape and the larger picture instead of standing front and center and taking up most of the frame. Exactly. That's so lovely. Isn't it? Uh, yeah, I love that. Yeah. Uh, what is why? Why do you think swimming does this? Um, why is swimming so uniquely or well suited to bringing about some of the the feelings we're talking about? And I think you brought up sort of phosphorescence. It, mm. it does seem like a lot of the species that have that are underwater species. Yeah. No, that is true. That's absolutely. Although. To my delight, um, in during lockdown, there were a bunch of discoveries that, like, all these Australian marsupials do actually glow under UV light. Um, wow. Yeah. I know scorpions do. Uh, no, like um, platypus do. Um, what were they? There were a whole bunch of wombats do. And they just, just discovered it by using a different torch. It was actually a, like a, a light shone on them in a um, UV torch in a museum. It was first in the States. I can't quite remember which university. Wow. And then they scrambled to have a look at it here. But you're right. It's it's um, especially in the deep, deep sea, which I'm kind of obsessed with because they're so funky looking down there, like spectacular light shows from all these different octopuses and, and you know, squids and so on. But then also these really crazy looking blobfish and anglefish but that's another that's another discussion so I was writing um 
columns for the New York Times and my editor said to me, why don't you write something? Because he knew that I was ocean, ocean swimming every morning at seven. And he said, why don't you write something about it? Um, and I, I sat and I was really puzzling over what it was that it did to me. So I start to swim at, um, at the southern end of a beach and then we go round with a group of people, usually at seven, at seven in the morning, you go round the headland to the next beach and you swim over a um, protected, it's like a, like a, I don't, I'm not sure what it is in miles, but it's a couple of kilometres, and you go um, over this protected marine bay. So there's little stripy sharks, um, Port Jackson sharks. There's cuttlefish that I became very obsessed with and still am. Um, and, uh, you know, occasionally we get dolphins, we get turtles, we get different kinds of fish. Like, um, and I was like, okay, so obviously, what and a lot of people like are really once they start this it's become a huge group now people a lot of people go off antidepressants once they start to do this they call it vitamin c and there is something and i was puzzling over it i'm like okay it gets me up in the morning and it makes me <clears throat> exercise and then you also see people and banter like just stupid banter with people with which you only have in common the fact that you love the tides and should you wear a wetsuit or not or um what is the ocean doing today is actually a really healthy thing to do first thing in the morning because you're just mucking around, right? And then, um, but I, but there was something else, and obviously there's physical beauty to it. I think exercising outside, there's evidence around how superior that is. Um, but I then realised that it was about awe, and it was um, something about swimming on the edge of a vast ocean whose rips and tides and curls you have to try to understand and to navigate carefully and respectfully, and, and the wonder. So when I'm going along and I see a cuttlefish and they're, they're so cool, like they've got these funny heads with these like trunks coming out and um, they splay, like if you get a real show off, they will, I, I mean I had one just recently a few weeks ago, so he was like, um, I'm going to go over the weeds now and I will go from this cool like blonde golden colour which is over the sand to this like prickly brown red colour over the weed and now I'm going to go over the rocks and I'm going to change to exactly that colour and um, now when you raise your two front fingers at it, it actually will raise them back at you. Um, he was like, I'm going to go forwards, I'm going to go backwards. Um, and I was so, I was just like, like, crazy with it because I just couldn't believe it and so I would race down to try to see if I could see this giant cuttlefish again um and it was giving me something wonderful and um during those times when it was really difficult I realized that these these sightings and that experience was sustaining me in a way that I wanted to try to articulate yeah. I wonder if part of it, like with the ocean, we're just less familiar with them. So there's a sort of yeah, that's right. strangeness to them. Yeah. And then I think you, you talk about this in the book. And I think it's that there's no screens down there, no noise. Nothing. It's just, it's like being in the womb or something. That's right. And it's like, um, it's also a, a, a rhythmical breathing thing too. It's like breathe, one, two, three one and you just you know you there's something soothing um the bloke who wrote blue minds who i've forgotten i've forgotten his name now but he said that water meditates you and i think i love that that's right right 
Um, so yeah, it does, it does overtake you in that sense. And I also could true really attracted to, even though there's commotion under the ocean and there's a dawn chorus there amongst fish too, which I did not know and was delighted to find out. But underneath there is a silence and a stillness. And I really was drawn to that in the period after I was sick and when I was recovering. And, uh, and that's why I've actually started to learn how to free dive because just being under and holding my breath. And I actually saw it as a state like what the Tibetans, you know, um, what Buddhists call the bardo, so a state where you're suspended between birth and rebirth. And it's an incredibly peaceful prospect to me. Yeah. I'm just about to go into the studio to record my latest audiobook. My wife and I have been listening to audiobooks. We've been listening to audiobooks in the car as a family just to keep our kids off screens because Audible is amazing. And Audible is also the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next-to-listen recommendations to satisfy every type of thriller listener. If you want breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that will enthrall you, even brand new and exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors and you want to check out Audible. My wife and I were just raving about this true crime audiobook that we read called Furious Hours. And then I've been raving about this book, Night of the Grizzlies, which I loved. Audio piques the imagination and it brings thrillers to life. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. Visit audible.com slash daily stoic or text daily stoic to 500-500. That's audible.com slash daily stoic or text daily stoic to 500-500. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the job. In fact, we were just hiring for Daily Stoic and we found our new podcast editor on LinkedIn Jobs because LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Over 2.5 small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring like we do, as I was just saying, because LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, sometimes even faster than that. You can hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. There's a a river in Texas. It starts from a a natural spring. Um, it's, It's in San Marcos. And the, it, there's this sort of rare species of, or I think it might be the only place. It's like a, it's like a, an underwater rice. I forget what it's called, but it's this sort of wavy, like tall grass. Yeah. And the the river is, it's like millions of gallons are just coming up. You see where the river starts. It just starts out of nowhere, yeah. and and it's, you know millions of gallons are just pouring out. And you get underwater, you can kind of swim against the current, at like almost like a treadmill or one of those infinity pools. And you're just watching these like waves of grass, mm-hmm. you know, go sway into the current like it's, you know, you're in the middle of the prairie somewhere, but you're underwater. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the most sort of incredible rhythmic things that I've ever experienced in my life. Yeah. And you, yeah, I think you go and you experience one of those things and then you leave. To me, what the idea of the book, your book is, is like that energy that you bring back into the world, we need more of that. Yes, I think that's right. And it's almost hard to put your finger on. And that's what I was trying to to grasp. Like, what is that? When you're sitting on a 
hell in a, some area where there's no light pollution, you're looking at the stars, like what is that? We mm-hmm. all know that that soothes us. We all know that it makes us feel better, but 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 why? And and that's why I think, you know, scientists are, are trying to get to it. <laughs> and um, why have we designed life to be literally the opposite of that and to have as little of that as humanly possible? That is the strange, that's strange right. thing about the modern world. The infinite distraction. I think that's yeah. Infinite. Yeah. That's but wrong. even just environmentally, right? Like, like for instance, on the Gulf Coast in America, they it somewhat recently there's this like law that um, because turtles are attracted to light, you can't have lights on any building that faces the ocean. Oh. So it's pretty incredible. Yeah. But you're sort of walking along the ocean; it's completely dark, uh, and, and it's you can actually see the stars, and it's wonderful. But to think that like. This was a thing they had to, this, it's this incredible gift. Anyone that experiences, experiences it loves it, just as if you, know, you, you get out of the city and you're away from the light pollution, you can actually see the stars. You're like, this is incredible. And then you're like, this only exists by accident, or this only exists because they rammed this unpopular law down people's throats. If people had, their, if people had the freedom to choose, they would choose not this, even though they love it, when they have it, it's insane. Yeah, that's so true. It's like it's almost like we're, we're we're becoming toddlers again that need to relearn attention. I don't know about you, but when I write, I download um, I think the Freedom app, so it locks all of my other internet access on my computer, and I don't get right. distracted because otherwise I'm back. And then sometimes I have to go and put my phone like the other end of the house or something, so I'm not looking at that. I have to. I have to really fight for my attention. And that's why now right. have eco resorts where they promise you, you can't get Wi-Fi <laughs> um, because we get distracted. But the more the world, you know, has become urbanized and we only tipped over a few years ago into more people living in urban than regional centers, the more we're going to have to be reminded of these mountain, growing mountain of evidence about how good green is for us, the side of green. Even in yes. plants, even in our house, like and in our neighborhoods, in our communities, how crucial that is. I was just reading an article this morning about the shrinking backyard in Australia um, and what that's going to mean in terms of climate and creating kind of little heat pools. So, um, yeah, it's. Um, I was reminded of this too when the, so I'm not sure if you're aware of this, like this, this growing um, forest therapy movement. Mm-hmm. And I went and met um, uh, Professor King Lee in uh, Tokyo to talk to him about it. And he is a very busy and in-demand moment. Um, um, Shunrin Yoko is, a, Yoko is what it's um, called. This so, and, and people are being taught around the world to be forest therapists and also to go on these, uh, you know, um, walks into natural areas and use all their five senses and take it in slowly. And, and what I find that wonderful in the sense that that's what people do and obviously it's not too expensive and all tied up with eco resorts that the you know that not everyone can access that's a great thing to be doing but there's also strikes me at the same time that it's it's almost sad that we have to be taught how to do that again yes yeah like that uh you mentioned indigenous peoples it's like we're paying we're rediscovering a thing that was has been well known for mm. uh thousands of years by people that we not only didn't listen to, but tried to 
take away, not only did we take the stuff away from them, we took them away from it and tried to indoctrinate them with our understanding of reality uh, to their detriment and our detriment. That's right. And, and I mean, when you think about one of the central tenets, as, as a non-Indigenous person, I won't, won't explain it as well as it should be explained, but the central tenet um, that Aboriginal people in Australia always talk about is listening to country. You listen to country. And in a way, that's hmm. a... It's a psychologically soothing thing for a person to be, take time out and be still and get off your devices and listen to country. But there's a second part of that, which is, is, is country sick now? Like, what are we doing to country? Right. Are, are, are we um, caring for it? And are, are we disconnected from it? Are we taming it and conquering it and plundering it and mining it? Or are we nurturing it? Um, and Aboriginal people have always been custodians of the land. That's what we... Um, you know, the phrase that we always use, and that's caretakers, and that's a fundamentally different understanding of what it means to be human. Yeah, and and I mean, there's also this sort of myth-making or revisionism that we can tell about, you know, First Peoples, where they also had problems with over-hunting and uh, not uh, sort of burning large swaths of land to do what they want. I mean, human beings, I think, just generally have this tendency of, of like, sort of... Uh, there's the part of us that appreciates land and wants to be a custodian of it. And yep. Then there's the other part of us that wants something for it. And so we exploit it and we ravage it and we steal from it. And we don't realize that what we're really doing is stealing from ourselves and stealing from the people that we claim to care about, which is our family and you know subsequent generations. Right. Exactly. For everyone. Um, yeah. I mean, I haven't seen evidence of that, you know, it, it, in Australian history, and we have the oldest continuous living culture on the planet, 65,000 years. And one of the big things that actually has been an issue is um, <clears throat> that um, Aboriginal people always um, did burning as a way of controlling yeah. the climate and controlling the temp the um, right the, the bushfires. So we we're having we have like having a lot of discussions around the times of these like horrific bushfires about whether whether we've not like well no we were rejecting their ancient wisdom on how you know if you sort of take over certain functions from nature then you also have to take over some of the destructive uh functions of nature yes. or you make yourself super super vulnerable yeah exactly it's like in california like a million acres a year would burn on its own mm -hmm. and then now nobody burns anything and then the whole state catches on fire and people go, how could this happen? And it's exactly. like, this has been happening for a million years. Exactly. Uh, we just still have so much to learn on that front. I think we better do it quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or uh, there won't be anything, anything left to learn. Um, one of the things I was going to ask you, I have some Victoria questions, which we'll loop back to, but I was curious, you know, like going through what you went through, um, I was struck when I, and obviously before I knew what you had gone through, one of the things I was struck by when I was reading about her life was just how much pain she must have been in as a human being or just throughout her life, not just the pain of the loss of her husband and the pain of childbirth, but it sounded like when they, when they sort of looked at her body after death, they were like, mm -hmm. how did this woman stand this? I know. Right? I, and I, that was one of those things I was awkward about um because i realized that too that's why she wanted to be carried around by strong servants a lot of the time i mean childbirth had literally kind of ravaged her body 
in a way that, and she was never examined by doctors and, um, you know, so she, and she ne- never received any help for what must have been, you know, an ongoing, very difficult physical condition. So that gave me a lot more insight and compassion into the fact that she was not physically mobile. If you're not physically mobile, you can have other attendant health issues and, and, and so on. So, um, yeah, and that was that the doctor found that she, um, yeah, that she'd had a prolapse on her on her um on her deathbed when he examined her and it's a thing of like do we tell that story when we tell a queen is that like too much um you know like you know going into her her privacy is it something we should know we shouldn't know and you don't want to be prurient about it but we also need to understand that in you know centuries past and and still today what what childbirth can do to women and what they endure silently um and well, it's like, I, I think it is important to talk about it. As you think about someone like Queen Elizabeth, and we sort of marvel at her decades and decades of service. Mm. But then you're like, what if you found out she was also in chronic pain every single That's moment right. of that service? You realize like, oh, this wasn't like an impressive person. This was like a superhero. Like this is, mm. this is incomprehensible that a person could have done this. Yeah. They talk about the veins of iron that went through Victoria's character. That's right. And they didn't have... You know the the pain relief in the in the way that they did now, and a lot of her uncles had been addicted to opium and had gout and like had done you know like were massively yeah. in debt and indulged every you know kind of gambling and like dozens of mistresses and all the rest of it. And she was so upright. Um, and but also but think about another thing that she was constantly um, attacked for, which was her reclusiveness. She worked. She worked mm-hmm. very hard, but she didn't want to go out into public and she um, didn't want to leave the comfort of her carriage a lot of the time. Um, and towards the end of her life when she had a big jubilee, she didn't get out. The, the, it drew up in front of the um, abbey or the cathedral and she stayed in there for the rest of the ceremony. But now we would understand that if we know, again, that they, you're right, that she was in chronic pain. Yeah, you know, Churchill had that joke about I forget who he's talking about, but he's like, uh, they're a modest man who has much to be modest about. Hmm. Um, it's sort of funny, you know, we admire sort of modesty or humility, uh, humility or restraint, but then you look at someone like Queen Elizabeth or you look at, uh, Queen Victoria and you're like, oh, but this person, this person is that way, Mm. but they could get, if you look at their predecessors, particularly their male predecessors or, Mm. uh, you know, Kings and royalty of, of, of any nationality in any country, you're like, Think of what you could get away with that you have chosen not to let yourself get away with. That I'm always very impressed with sort of voluntary regulation. Yes. You know, like she could have done whatever she wanted. Instead, she chose to work very hard. Yeah, I know. Um, <clears throat> I mean, she did stretch the limits of constitutionality. She did, you know, have... Um, a visceral dislike of William Gladstone, tried to prevent him from becoming Prime Minister. She corresponded with generals in the field directly about how to conduct the <laughs> war. So, I mean, when there was overreach, that was the kind of thing she did. But you're, uh, but you're right. I mean, she conducted herself in a way she didn't. She burst into tears upon discovering how close she was to the throne. And um, yeah, I think we know it's a heavy burden and an inherited power is a very peculiar thing. Um, I think we kind of can re- fundamentally recognise that. But <clears throat> she grasped it and she performed her duty. And so in- England has had the Victorian and the current, you know, Elizabethan 
eras of these women who uh, should never be underestimated as, you know, decorative or functional because of how hard they work. Um, and the fact that, you know, they're, 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 both of them have been the most famous uh, working women of their time. One of the, the things, there's a couple of things that in that book that you just sort of threw off offhandedly that really hit me. And, and one of them connects to the new book also. Um, and I ended up doing a bunch of research on it when I read it. But you sort of threw out this weird thing about William Gladstone, how he liked to just go cut down trees um, <laughs> as, a, as a hobby. Mm-hmm. And that strikes me as a, as a I mean, it's, it's a form of, I guess, forest bathing, but also just sort of hobby and getting lost in the flow state of doing a thing. Mm. Uh, kind of an unusual hobby, but I just I love the peculiarity of it. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's so smart. I've not had anyone weave together these two books before, so that's quite a delightful insight for me. Um, that's right. I mean, and he would do it for months at a time. He would Thousands of trees he chopped down in his lifetime. Three, three months and then go off and really, I don't know, think about what to do about Ireland, um, read a few, like, you know, heavy tomes, and uh, he would, you know, conduct a few sermons. He was like, he gave a few sermons for his servants, which I'm sure they were thrilled about every week. Um, I mean, Victoria said she spoke to him. He speaks to me as if it was a public meeting. And that was part of his problem with the awkwardness of his relationship with her is that, you know, he was kind of um, strict and, and booming and very, very smart and but possibly charmless, whereas, you know, Benjamin Disraeli was so um, elegant in prose and, and manner and constantly complimenting her and she was utterly charmed by it. I think he was, you know, really great company. So that was part of that. But, no, I think that's it. He did get into that's how he got into Flobe. And this is a man who gave four to five-hour speeches, you know, on the stump, which itself is hard to fathom as well. <laughs> right. He must have been practicing them in his head as he was right. doing this. Yeah, the dot points for his work. But, you know, imagine the luxury of being able to do that now. Like, we can, we don't allow readers yeah. a, a, a day off, uh, let alone a weekend. Right, no, it's like, uh, sorry, you can't reach the president. He's uh, chopping down trees on his property right now. Yeah. No one would accept that. He's in the flow, Yeah. <laughs> The, the other offhanded thing I loved, uh, less connected, but more of a fascinating historical what if that I, I'd wanted to ask you about. You mentioned that there was some talk of Queen Victoria marrying, was it Van Buren or Pierce? I forget who it was, but there was some idea that that she would marry uh, either a former or sitting U.S. president. Was that right? Oh yeah, that's right. Am I making this up? No, I remember no, it being in right. the book. It was, it was a. It was. A, it was gossip. But um, not actually founded, as so many things were when she when she was very eligible, um, and that was that that was one of the um, names that was suggested, I believe, in the the, the American papers. But it, it never took never took hold. Um, and Albert was her great love, but she also had a second love, which was John Brown, her servant. I was just thinking of how different the special relationship would have been had <laughs> had had America and Britain after the revolution, after uh, the War of eighteen twelve, which wasn't that distant to you know her age, no. had been somehow joined by marriage. Once again, it would have been insane. That would have been amazing, and Britain would have gone completely crazy. Can you imagine her marrying? An American. I mean, they destroyed the German that she married. They just couldn't. They were constantly at him. Right. 
right, um, for being German and, like, they, they said he was penniless and he was um, under under a fog of, of suspicion for that, even though Albert was one of the best things that had actually happened to the monarchy for quite a long time. But, no, he, it's a fascinating prospect, actually. Um, you know, when we're talking about someone like Queen Victoria or, or some of the, the people you mentioned, it strikes me that... Uh, this sort of phosphorescence is, well, I call it stillness, but it's like when somebody has it, you can just feel it. Like when you're, Mar- Marcus Relius in Meditations, he says, you know, you want to be like the smelly goat in the room, like everyone knows it's there, and, which I think is a funny image. But like when you're when you're around someone who has that, although they're not literally lighting up, we do talk about people who light up a room. You're just, mm. you're just around them and you can, you know, this energy, what people talk about energy, which obviously doesn't really exist, but of course it also exists. Yeah. And it's energy. Like I think with the phosphorescence thing, sometimes lighting up a room can mean charisma and attractiveness and charm and extroversion. And, um, but you also want to know how you feel when that person leaves a room. Mm-hmm. If I go back to Gladstone and Israeli again. Um, a woman, <clears throat> I'm trying to work out if the American ambassador's wife, I can't remember, but so it, it, you, a woman said that sitting next to William Gladstone at a dinner party, you felt like you were sitting next to the smartest man in the world. He was so impressive and so brilliant. Sitting next to Disraeli, you felt like you were the smartest woman in the world. Um, yes. And that was the essence of his charm, I think. But in my family, and I write about this in my book, we talk about basement people and penthouse people. You have some encounters with people. You walk away and, you've, you know, someone can be a little bit toxic, said a few things, oh, haven't you finished your book yet? Oh, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and then that just takes you down. And someone else can take you up and that's kind of and that's and that's to the penthouse and what is it about those people and my mother was one of those people she was a very calming um and she was an introvert but there was something about her that was so um strong and content and non-judgmental um and she had this grace that you always left feeling better and I think that's a real aspiration to be that person I think with a phosphorescent person, it feels like they know what makes them s- strong and they're not kind of needing input. They've worked out um, how to pay attention to the world and to others and how to shrink their own heads in photos on all walks, you know. There's something yes. very appealing about people who who have that worked out. Yeah, it, it's um, it's like... They make they make you. I don't I don't know. You it, do you know who Caesar Milan is the yeah. the dog trainer? <laughs> I have a dog. He, so like, I'm familiar with this? Yes. Yeah, it's like somebody where you're like, how does this person just like have an energy that like an animal can sense? Right. Like again, it feels it feels preposterously woo woo that someone you're like, oh, I felt their energy, or they have very calming energy, or whatever. But then. Then you experience it and you're like, oh, this is real. Like, this is real. That's exactly right. Um, I think, I mean, I have had my dog trained. I think that what he's often picking up with is the massive bag of treats that they always have. Um, that sure. That would be very effective. But I know exactly what you're talking about. And I'm wondering if 
what you've noticed in all your research is that it's people who adhere to, say, you know, a stoic philosophy and really deliberately pursue it and have packed stillness and meditation into their day and that kind of takes them somewhere else. I and mean, what I've noticed with my work on awe and wonder and even talking to people who regularly freedive or surf, surf or whatever, that does give them something. Or, or people who are conscious of, oh, yeah, of being still or of looking outwards, um, they're kind of the people I'm, I, I really want to spend time with. Is that what you found yeah. in your work? Yeah, it's like, you know, for instance, someone who is uh, like very skilled at martial arts, they could be wearing totally regular street clothes yes. and they sort of walk in the room and they touch you and you're like, oh, this person, this person has a, a carriage or a sense of themselves that's, that's been changed by something they've experienced or learned right. that I don't have as just a regular person. Maybe this is could also get this someone who's been at war or also like, I don't know, I never met the Dalai Lama, but someone who has just done an intense sort of spiritual discipline. You're just like, oh, you're operating at a frequency that is so distinct that it's, I'm getting vibes. Mm. Yeah, that's that's right. And then how do you get to that place because I think sometimes we think it's by I don't know rote learning verses or by ticking off whether it's religious or secular rituals and and it's actually not it's kind of creating a space where um wherever it is about you I mean like because we don't have many spaces where we talk about character and how you form character right it's not cutting and pasting inspirational quotes it's developing a practice whatever that may be what is it for you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's, uh, I, I have this weird experience. I, I, I can feel myself getting into a weird place. I tend to, I run usually lately, I've been running in the morning, uh, but then I, I sort of work out in the evening and after my kids have gone to sleep, I'll work out in the gym. And then I usually, uh, I live out in the country, so I'll, I'll, I'll go for like a short walk on my property in the dark, no light, just mm. sort of by the moon. Mm. And I can just feel myself accessing uh, like a different frequency that I'm not normally on where I'm kind of present and locked in and calm and quiet in a way that's just, yeah, like sort of not not where I normally am. Yeah. See, isn't that interesting? Because that's what I was trying to discover. Like, what is that? Is it the moon? Is it the space? Is it the silence? And And swimming is exactly like that for me. I mean, my kids will push me out the door. Yesterday, my kid was like, Mom, Sam was like, like Mom, you need it. Yeah, yeah. You got to have your swim. He said, I don't know why you miss it uh, like every now and then because the days you miss it, you always say, you don't feel the same and you know, aren't the same. You just got to, and I'm like, yeah, no, I'm aware of all of that. Um, but, you know, a lot of people could say the same for exercise as well. But I think it is um, repetitive behavior. It's almost like a, yeah, I mean, it's like a, it's a spiritual practice, I think. Uh, Australia is the perfect place to swim just because it's also insanely naturally beautiful. Like those, yeah. those rock pools are, are, I mean, I don't know. Austin has some, some amazing sort of natural swimming pools, but I don't think there's anything that comes close to those swim clubs in, uh, in Australia. Yeah. I think though what I learned and, um, as you would know, one of the best things about writing a book is, um, the correspondence that you get from people. 
Mm-hmm. Especially about the stuff that we all share, like during COVID and um, maybe the last presidential election in your country and some of the stuff that's been happening here, it's like there's just so much division and toxicity and it's really wonderful to think about the things that we all <clears throat> we all love and we all share. And I'm acutely conscious that you don't need to be sitting on top of, a you know, the Grand Canyon or um, swimming with whale sharks to get a sense of that awe and a lot of people can find it in their own backyards I mean a sunrise and a sunset can give you that thing um it's just I think for me working out what it is that takes you outside of yourself and just building into your day it's kind of it's 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 as simple as that yeah there's a Seneca line I wish I could speak Latin but it's something Mm -hmm. like uh, the whole world is a temple of the gods and I think if you can go through life that way not only does it one sort of Connect, uh, give you a good sense of what our obligations are to the planet that we've been given, but it also allows you to to sort of constantly be in that state of awe or reverence because mm-hmm. you're seeing it as a temple as opposed to just uh, a random. You know, it, you're 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 really seeing the landscape. Yeah, that's right. It's almost like I don't know. It's like almost living in a state of grace in a strange way and actually seeing how yeah. everything, everything is like childbirth. I mean, we do our kids are milling around all the time, but unbelievable. Like the day when you, you know, you must have been like this when your partner gave birth. It's just like unbelievable. And that happens every day all over the place. Like what the hell is that? <laughs> Speaking of awe, you know? Well, my, my son turned five yesterday yeah. and uh, you're just like this this thing is five years old and is like mm-hmm. tall and walking around and has opinions about things and tells you stories about it's like, if you look at life from the right eye, it's, it's almost like you're, you're high on drugs because it's so incomprehensibly weird and beautiful and wonderful and blows your mind all the time. If you let it. Yeah, that's right. And, and again, it's like, like to anyone who might be listening, who's going through a really, horrible like feral time and doesn't know how they're going to get out of it it might sound like oh yeah you know here they are banging on about childbirth or treat or you know nice waves or whatever and I think when I was going through like black times it's like you just it's like um you're not going to go from um being flat out in your bed to a state of ecstasy on a cliff in a in a moment it's it's understanding what it is that can give you this strength and trying to bring it into your life by increments and before you know it. I mean, there's a fantastic book that's been written. I think it's called It's the Sound of a Snail Eating. And it was a woman who was really unwell and she, um, like to the extent she really could not get out of bed for a considerable period of time and someone gave her a plant and um, did not know there was a snail on it. And every day she observed this snail and she wrote this beautiful book about it because um, she, you know, the, the snail then reproduced and she kind of like learned about all the, the sound that it makes when it eats and the thousands of rows of teeth and wove that into her own story. And you can see that this snail in a way gave her life and it's extraordinary because she was pulled out of herself at a time when she didn't really want to inhabit herself. And, right. Yeah. And um, who would know? I mean, if, you know, like, honestly, you something really terrible happens, you wouldn't say here's a snail. But people have found that out um, by going through that experience. And I was exactly the same with cuttlefish. And 
that's what took me to understand that um, making a habit out of awe can, you know, can be like a leg rope um, to su- to survival. Well, I think that's that's well said because it's not, they didn't gift her a trip to the Grand Canyon <laughs> or to you know Stonehenge or something. Yeah, uh, she the the she had it she had it within her that gave her the plant, but it could have been anything. It was that she was open to seeing, yes, exactly, and experiencing and not closing herself off to the wonderful thing. That's right. And then, lo and behold, what happens when you do? Yeah. Speaking of last uh, insane, mind-blowing things, I only just learned this recently because I was reading a book about it to my kids. But did you know that wombats have square poop and they're the only animal in the world that does that? Yes. Yeah. How fucking weird is that? Yeah, There's a place called Kangaroo Valley, which of course is inhabited almost entirely by wombats that I go and stay out with my kids. And we go on night missions to try to find them with torches and stuff. But they're everywhere. And there's these cubes. And it was, I was really amused recently to see that someone had done like a study and worked out that, oh, it's their intestines. Like that's how they actually produce it. I'm like, well, yeah, no, we didn't know. Be. Like nobody knew how yeah, until yeah. like this year. But like, of course, that's what happened. You know what I mean? It's not like they yeah. turn around afterwards, they've, you know, and then just shape it into a little nice. <laughs> 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 but yeah, wombats are amazing. A friend of mine wrote a book about them, actually. One of my friends who's got a great capacity for wonder. He's written a book about great whites and also wombats. They're incredibly fast. Um, and, and children are so good at this. And if I can talk about this, if I just to mention this book, it's by James, yeah. James Woodford called The Secret Life of Wombats. And he found, so the world expert to date, the best work that's been done on the life of wombats was by a 12-year-old boy. He used to sneak out of his boarding school in Victoria at night with a torch and wriggle down into wombat holes. He learned how they moved, how they related to each other, how they grunted to each other, the sounds they make, and he went back and wrote it all up. And to date, it's this definitive thing. And there's That's the best. Right? And there's something about the capacity of kids for wonder. And I was really struck by Martha Nussbaum saying what sounds like a really simple thing, but, like, how wonderful Twinkle Little Star is. Like, tell your kids to wonder what that is. Like, what is that? I'm still wondering about the stars, you know? Um, and that cultivating that curiosity and that openness to awe is a great thing to give a child. And then sometimes we find actually they're giving it back to us. Well, and that, that your job as an adult is, it's, you're not even, it's not even your job to cultivate it. It's your job to not crush it because it's already there. Your job is not to steal it from them, which is what so many parents do. Yeah. But also, but also to just take, take them out whenever you can. Like my little one, for some reason, is very resistant. I don't know if that's his way of rebelling against me is to not want to swim. It's like that's a massive rebellion. But, like, I will drag. If there's big surf and big seas near my place, there's, like, there's massive waves and I like to go and sit on the cliffs and watch the surfers. And um, and I've dragged him out to do that recently, like I dragged them to see to the bioluminescence when it was happening in the waves. And then they get it, you know. And I feel like the fact that my daughter was yelling at me that we had to run as fast as we could because we'd heard the two beaches along, there was blue bioluminescence in the waves and she was yelling this at me at like 11 o'clock at night and, of course, I was in my swimmers and out the doors before you could say anything. I felt that when I heard her running along the beach and she was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I felt like that 
she was going to be okay. I found that very reassuring that she had that capacity um, to run kind of screaming into the light, no matter whatever else she was going through at the time. That's beautiful. Well, we'll call it there. I, I truly loved the new book and I loved the other book and uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan and I'm so glad we got to talk and I'm, I'm glad that you found, uh, found light amidst the, the darkness and, and now you're doing in a very phosphorescent way, uh, sh- sharing it with other people. Oh, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you, Ryan. Thank you so much. I love how you wove the books together. No one. That's my job. Yeah, it's wonderful. Thank you. My new book, Courage is Calling, is now officially a New York Times bestseller. Thank you so much to everyone who supported the book. It it was literally and figuratively overwhelming. We signed almost 10,000 copies of the book, which just, you know, it, it hit me right here. And I appreciate it so much. If you haven't picked up a copy or you want to pick up a signed copy as a gift, please do. You can get your copy at dailystoic.com slash courage is calling, or you can just go to store.dailystoic.com. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that just saved Abercrombie? Or the tech acquisition that was just like Game of Thrones? Or the one financial equation that can solve climate change? Then check out our daily podcast, The Best One Yet, or as we call it, T-Boy. This is Nick. This is Jack. And we pick the three most interesting business news stories every day for the perfect mix. 20 minutes each morning, you're going to feel brighter. We call it pop biz, don't we, Jack? Where pop culture meets business news. So whether you want to kick off a conversation with your buddies, or you're going for that promotion at work, or you just want to know the trends before your friends, feel brighter by starting your morning with us every weekday. Listen to the best one yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your pods. You can listen to the best one yet ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. For more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts. With shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, and many more, Wondery means business. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shay Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shay Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.